glad you're here today. Thank you so much for coming and being with us today. One of the things I really appreciate about you is you're always ready. You're energetic and ready to go and see what God's going to do. And uh, so thank you and welcome. If you're a guest, I want to welcome you and just say uh, that we're glad that you decided to come. Check us out as a church. If you wouldn't mind, in your worship program, there's a little card that we call it a connection card. It's attached to the worship program. If you'd fill it out for us. You could actually impact somebody's life, and I'll let you read the worship program to find out what I'm talking about today, but if you wouldn't mind filming that out, that'd be a huge blessing to us. And you can drop it in the box on your way out, or take it out the first time guest kiosk. If you take it out there, we have a gift for you, and I would love to bless you in that way. And then speaking of the boxes, um, in addition to our boxes today, our regular offerings and tithes that we do, and I know some of you do that online as well, we're doing a $1 offering today. And so you can see some stuff about that in the worship program uh, that we're going to be giving money. In addition to our regular giving that we do on a weekly basis, we give to strategic partners and different stuff in our community and various things out of the regular budget. But we ask you on fifth Sundays to be a part of our $1 offering. And our $1 offering, we're going to give money this time to uh, Refugee Relief. And we're doing a partnership with World Relief and some ministry there. And uh, wanting to bless people to come into our Triangle area. And there's a lot more than we probably most of us realize that come from around the world as refugees. And so they literally come here with what they can carry. And lacking basic necessities like deodorant, um, toilet paper, toothbrush, toothpaste, stuff that many of us have used this morning and didn't really think much about. And so the dollar offering, we're going to use money to go towards that type of thing for them. Next week, we'll tell you how it goes. Our goal is that for every person that's in attendance today, we'll have a dollar given. And so if uh, maybe you know that somebody's not able to or whatever, and you drop two in there, um, whatever the deal is, or you weren't prepared this morning, you can bring it through the week, uh, this next week at our office. And we'd love to have you be a part of that. But we're going to do um, the next part in our series, New Beginnings. I've been enjoying this series, Lord willing. Um, it's been a blessing to your life as well. And if you haven't been with us um, through the past several weeks, maybe you're a guest here today, we've been talking about like, how God gives us a second chance. And you saw it in that video. How he gives us a new beginning when we turn our lives over to Jesus Christ. And what he does, is he sets us on a new direction. As we're traveling in that new direction, there's certain things that take place. And one of them is new community. We have community together as believers in Jesus Christ. And Lord willing, this morning as we come together, we worship him. Um, he'll strengthen that community, bind our hearts together on the mission, the purpose that he has for us to glorify him in this world. I'm going to pray for us that that's exactly what would happen. Will you pray with me as we open up God's word? Father God, we thank you so much for your glory, that you are glorious, that you are worthy of our praise and our worship and our adoration and our lives, our hearts, our minds, our time, our talent, our energies. God, everything being surrendered to you. And I pray that would be true for our lives. I pray as we sing songs to you today, we wouldn't be making ourselves hypocrites, but that we'd surrender our lives to you. God, we confess sin right now. And we confess when we've held back from you. And Father God, I pray that you'd take all of our lives this morning. And I pray that we would turn, turn our lives to you. And that you do something beautiful and glorious through them for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, it's uh, great to be back together after last week's time sharing with one another. And as we get started this morning, I just want to ask you a question. And so what do you think of when I say the word courage? What comes to mind? What image do you get? Or maybe there's a person, or maybe there's something that you've done, or something you've seen done, or something throughout history that comes into your mind when you think of courage. What is courage? Is it a person? You know, is it the athlete that wants to take the game-winning shot at the end of the game? They want the pressure on them. They want to do that. Or is it uh, the soldier or the general that leads his men out into battle knowing that the other team or other army has more people? Is that courage? Is it somebody who does something that's never been done before? You know, a lot of times we remember the people that were the first one to walk on the moon, do some invention, whatever it is. It's those, is it the people that have done the first thing? And you think about what is courage? My wife and I were watching TV, I think it was a couple months ago now, and I was flipping through the channels and went by ESPN, which tends to happen when I have the remote control, and uh, as I was flipping through the channels, I had the X Games on there. I don't know if you've ever seen X Games before or not, 
but it's like take a sport or a hobby <laughs> and make it extreme and then they make it into a game. And so whether it's snowboarding or skateboarding or, you know, riding a thing down a mountain and running into straw. I don't know what they're doing, but some of them, they got these different things that are happening that are just conventional hobby type stuff they've made extreme. Like, I grew up in Michigan, they had a lot of snow in Michigan, and I was watching snowmobiling. I don't know if you've ever seen a snowmobile before. It's about a 400 piece of equipment, 400 pound piece of equipment. It goes about 100 miles per hour. Some genius decided he wanted to jump these things in the air, <laughs> and they made a sport out of it. And they were, we were watching snowboarding or uh, snowmobiling, jumping. I don't know what the title is of what they were doing. They're jumping snowmobiles about 30 feet in the air, doing flips and jumping off of them, landing back on them. And that's whoever did the best job at being crazy at doing that was supposedly some hero in this subculture that I was not really familiar with. And so Shannon and I are watching this, and I'm, I'm watching, I'm thinking, they've got special, they're like Christians, they've got special language that no one else understands. Like, they're saying words and phrases that I don't know what it means, and, and they've got different stuff that's happening here. And what they were building up was there was going to be a guy that day that was going to be the first person ever to do a double backflip. Now, think about that for a second. A 400-pound piece of equipment, he's going to drive it and flip around twice in the air. And they were talking about this, like this was going to be world-changing. <laughs> and I got into it as I was watching the show. I was like, this is history. Like, I want this guy to pull this off. I didn't even know people tried this kind of stuff like 10 minutes ago. And all of a sudden, this is really important to me. And so I'm watching this thing. And this guy gets on the snowmobile, and he drives around. He's kind of getting the crowd hyped up. He's psyching himself up to do this. And he gets it, so he's facing the ramp, and he punches the throttle, and he hits this ramp, and he shoots up in the air, and he goes around once, and he comes around the second time, and boom, nose first, the snowmobile lands on the ground. Big flurry of snow happens. Snowmobile runs the guy over and goes down the hill. He hops up, and his arm's going like this. And he wasn't doing the, you know, that deal. He's like just kind of flopping around. His arm's broken. He just ran himself over with a 400-pound piece of equipment. And I'm thinking, what an idiot. Now, 30 seconds before, had he pulled this off, he would have been courageous like a hero. So what was he? Was that courage or was that stupid? And what is courage? Is that you do something stupid and it works? Because some people would say that I'm not a courageous person, I'm reserved, <laughs> discerning, I'm wiser than that. Other people would say, I'm brave, I'm a courageous person because I do stupid stuff. But what is courage? And if I start this message by just asking you, are you courageous? We've got so many different definitions, we've got to bring it into focus. Let me tell you what we're going to talk about today as we talk about a new kind of courage. It's having confidence in the face of our fears. That's courage. Having confidence in the face of your fears. And so the natural question I have to ask you is this, what are you afraid of? What's your greatest fear? And I don't just mean some phobia, like, you know, I don't like peanut butter and I'm afraid to touch it, or I don't like the dark, or those types of things. I'm talking about like at your core, what are you afraid of? Maybe being alone, that could be a fear. Maybe being found out, being exposed, you feel like there are certain things that people really knew about you that wouldn't love you, or maybe it's a fear of failure or commitment. As you came in today, you noticed that each one of you had a slip of paper that was in your cup holders or sitting on your seat. And I want to challenge you to take just a moment right now as I talk and write down the answer to that question. What is your fear? Maybe it's your greatest fear. Maybe it's the one that's on your mind right now. Maybe it's the one that's relevant to you at this point in time in life. But what is your fear? Are you afraid of loss? Afraid of losing something that's important to you? Or someone? Or some position? Or something like that? Or maybe it's a fear of commitment. Some people are so afraid of commitment they won't commit to anything because they're afraid they might commit to the wrong thing <laughs> and they've made a commitment to nothing. Some people are afraid that they're going to lose control because they believe in their mind somehow they actually have it. 
Some people are afraid of forgiving someone in their life because of what that might do to empower them or let them get away with something. Some people are afraid to trust. Some people are afraid of community. Some people are here today. You're afraid to turn your life over to God because of what he might do. Some people are afraid to trust Jesus Christ. What's your fear? Today we're going to talk about a new kind of courage. If you have your Bible, we're going to be in Acts chapter 4. We were in Acts chapter 2 last week. This week we're going to be in Acts chapter 4. We're going to start reading in verse 12. Let me just tell you something about Acts chapter 4. It's interesting because it's not the most spectacular passage in all of Scripture. It's kind of the the calm after what had taken place, after the excitement, after the X Games of the the Scriptures, after the spectacular had taken place. It's after that mountaintop experience for Peter and John. They're now in the valley. And some of you, you've been there before where you've gone to a Bible conference or you've been to church and got pumped up or listened to some song on the radio and then you go into work. And it's oftentimes the battle takes place after the mountaintop experience. And remember last week we saw that Peter and John, they're preaching. Peter preaches the first sermon in the Christian church. 3,000 people trust Christ. That's a mountaintop experience. And then what happens after that, they get the awe of all the people, favor of all the people. Peter and John are walking into the temple one day. They're hanging out together. And as they're going into the temple, there's this guy sitting there at the gate called Beautiful. It's the gate that they're entering through, chapter 3 and verse 1. And he's crippled. He can't walk. And so he's a beggar because he couldn't work at that time. And some of you, you know what it's like. You see the same person begging on a daily basis. You kind of get familiar with them, what their problems are, all those things. Well, this guy's there all the time. He's 40 years old. People know him all around. Everybody who comes into the temple all around town, they know this guy. And he's asking again for money. And Peter looks at him and says, silver and gold to give you, we don't have. But what I have, I'll give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. This guy gets up and he starts doing calisthenics, okay? He, he's pumped up. He's excited. He runs into the temple, <laughs> runs into the temple. All these people just walked by him, and he wasn't able to do this. Now everyone's paying attention. And Peter seizes the moment, and he begins to preach about Jesus Christ. At the temple, where all these people are coming for Jewish worship, he starts to tell them about Jesus Christ. And the people start listening, and now there's, according to Acts chapter 4, verse 4, 5,000 men, not just women, children, and men that were 3,000 in chapter 2. Talk about some growth. Now there's 5,000 men in the church. As Peter's preaching this message to them, after this guy's been healed, it's got their attention, what happens is the police come in and arrest Peter while he's preaching. Now tell me if you went to church today and somebody got healed and then the pastor got arrested at the end of the service, you'd forget that real quick. That's what's happened here. But now the next day, they get put on trial. After the spiritual high takes place, now there's a battle to take place. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12 is the end of a sermon that Peter basically preaches to 71 guys that have authority over him, the Supreme Court of his day. And he says this, salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. They took note that these men had been with Jesus. Verse 14, But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. (laughs) Exhibit A, the guy's standing here. And so they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? They asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they've done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading, here's their agenda. They don't deny that it really happened. But to stop this thing from spreading... Any further among the people 
we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. After further threats, and they continued to give them more threats, they let them go. They couldn't decide how to punish them because the people were all praising God and what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was 40 years old. This didn't just happen. It wasn't an accident. A miracle had taken place. And what ends up happening for Peter and John is they come before what would essentially be the supreme court of their day. 71 men, 71 of the most powerful men of their day. And they want Peter and John to stop. And what we see is that there's actually such courage that they were astonished by it. Such confidence in the face of fear that this Sanhedrin, this Supreme Court, is astonished by what Peter and John are doing. Where does this come from? And you look at verse 13, it says, They took note that they had been with Jesus. See, this new kind of courage comes from being with Jesus. And that's our first point. This new kind of courage, this confidence in the face of fear, it comes from being with Jesus. And if you think about it, if we had this kind of courage in our culture, how we would shine like a light in darkness, how we would stand out in such a way, because we live in such a culture with a backdrop of fear, and even at a superficial level, if you just think about how fear is fostered in our culture, and you see it, people use it to sell products, the fear of loss. If you don't act now, you will miss out. You know, we've only got 200 items. So the first 200 callers, they're going to get it. So act now. In other words, if you don't act now, you miss out. And the fear of loss motivates you to pick up that phone and to call on to order that thing you don't need. <laughs> or, or the fear of something might happen to you. Like if you don't order this, then guess what will happen? The alarm system, you know, you see it where it's got like the bad guys broke all your... I don't know why bad people would break stuff. They're trying to take stuff. And so they break all the pictures in the house and you walk in with your kid and see each other and he's scared of you and your little daughter. And so he runs off, which is how these, you know, ADT commercials work. But the idea is if you don't have our alarm system, this could happen to you. Fear. Fear to get you to do something, get you to buy something, whether it's insurance, an alarm system, a helmet, whatever it is, they motivate you with this stuff. And we live in a fear-based culture. A little test for you. How many of you at home have warning labels on stuff that changes the way you behave? Like you've got ugly tags hanging off of pillows and mattresses. You won't cut them off because they say things like, do not remove. Because a federal law, as if the FBI has time to go knocking on doors. Do you have tags on your pillows in there? We'd like to see them. <laughs> We're afraid, Jason said. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, right. But now that's superficial level, right? But it's a culture of fear. We're afraid. And so what happens is being immersed in this culture of fear saturates our hearts. We, we have fears that control all of our behaviors. Fear of other people, fear of their opinions, fear of the worst case scenario, fear of cancer, fear of disease, fear of losing jobs, fear of losing friends, fear of losing all kinds of stuff, fear of loss of control, fear of, and I don't know what you wrote down on your paper, but all kinds of fear. What would it be like to face those fears with confidence? You think about the greatest fear in the life of a man like Peter, who while Jesus was on trial before the Supreme Court, denies even knowing Jesus to a slave girl. And now he stands here before his greatest fear and has astonishing courage. How does this happen? You think about these men, Peter and John, common fishermen from Galilee. 
It doesn't get any more normal and average than that. Can anything good come from Galilee? Galilee, this place, it's just fishermen. It's just these guys. They're just common folks. They don't have any rabbis. They didn't go to any of the good schools. They're ordinary men. Not theologically trained, not trained in philosophy, not trained in rhetoric, not trained in the laws. They don't know this stuff. How do they do this? They're astonished by these men. And can you imagine what it was like to be Peter and John at this point in time in their lives? They ran a successful fishing business. They leave everything to follow Jesus. They walk with him for three years. Things don't go exactly the way they planned. One of them denies Jesus. The other one's heartbroken over his best friend dying on a cross. Then he raises from the dead, and these guys receive the Holy Spirit, and all of a sudden God starts doing supernatural stuff through them. Peter stands up. He preaches this first sermon. 3,000 people come to know Jesus. How do you think Peter felt after that? Did he think, I'm the man? I just preached 3,000 people came to Jesus. I was sharing with the first service. I've preached before and thought to myself, because of the way people responded, did I say something wrong? <laughs> like, like, it seems like you wouldn't respond positively to that. Like, how many people would like to deny themselves, take up their cross, follow me? People raise their hand. It's like, did I just say how many people love God? You know, what did, what did they do here? Did I just mess that up, God? How do you think Peter felt at this moment? Probably incredibly humbled. And now he preaches again, hey, you killed Jesus. And they're like, we want to trust Jesus. You know, there's 5,000 guys. There's been no opposition to Christianity up until this point. It's been total smooth sailing, and God's doing miracles through them. And then while he's preaching, Acts chapter 4, verse 1, what happens is the chief priests and the temple guards and the Sadducees, they come and they interrupt the sermon. Now, it says in the NIV, the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees, they came up to Peter. (laughs) It's almost like, excuse me, Peter, we've got something to say to you while you preach. That's not how it worked. It's a really strong Greek word. So they descended upon Peter and John while they were speaking. In other words, for our vernacular, Peter and John got bum-rushed. Okay? Somebody busted up in their grill. Like, I don't know how you talk, but somebody was getting up in their business, okay? And it was stopping it. There was no, like, tapping on the shoulder. It was Peter standing there proclaiming, you killed Jesus, God raised him from the dead, you need to repent, be baptized, trust Christ, and then somebody stepped in front. That's done. You're done. Enough of that. Somebody else steps in. Uh, Everyone else can go home now. You can imagine the crowd was a little bit bothered by this. These guys, though, that are doing this, they've got the authority. They've got the power. They're called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin means that they were the guys that ruled under Rome. Rome ruled today, but these guys ruled Jerusalem. They had the authority to have these guys killed. They had the authority to arrest these men. They had authority to do whatever they wanted. It was happening right inside the temple. And these guys, some of them are the chief priests. He's the leader. There's 70 of them plus the chief priests, 71 people. And they're the most powerful men of the day. They're the religious elite. They're the social elite. They're the financial elite. They are the people that if there was a Jerusalem Time magazine, they would be on the cover as the 71 most powerful men of their day. And they don't want this to happen. And here's why they don't want it to happen. It's not because they disagree with this theologically, although they do. It's because these guys are the religious elite These guys are the social elite. They're the academic elite. They're the top dogs. They like their life the way that it is. And they don't want somebody messing with it. They also happen to be the guys that condemn Jesus and don't believe that the resurrection is a theological reality. And now Peter's preaching what? That Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And the reason why they killed Jesus is because Jesus threatened to change their lives. You see, oftentimes you hear people share their testimony of how they came to Jesus Christ as their Savior. It's because something bad happened. And they lost something. They realized their need. It was either their sinfulness or there was a divorce or lost a job or something happened and they realized they had a need for God. But oftentimes you come into contact with people less cruising along really nice 
And how many people turned to God then? Now, these guys, they got things under control. I mean, they've got the money, they've got the power, they've got the position. They would trade eternal life to keep their life exactly the way that it is because Jesus threatens to change all of our lives. And so some of us, we can relate with the Sanhedrin. So we don't really have a need for God. He's a nice add-on to our lives and good people go to church and all that kind of stuff. These guys were the religious leaders of the day. They looked moral. They were good neighbors. They were nice. They were friendly. But they didn't want anything to do with Jesus because Jesus threatens to change everything. If they were to write down their number one fear is that they would lose their religious influence, political influence, money, control. I might relate with some of yours. And so they want to shut this thing down. And they arrest Peter. And they arrest John. And they're unschooled. They're ordinary men. And here's how the trial would, would typically go. They have a requirement as the Sanhedrin to find out if there's a miracle that's done, was it done by God? Because if somebody does a miracle and they proclaim it was done by someone other than God, they're to be stoned to death according to Deuteronomy chapter 13. And so these men know that they're facing death, Peter and John. And they stand there before the very men that condemned Jesus, the one that they're preaching. Men that they know don't believe in the resurrection, and they're going to proclaim resurrection. And they get asked the question, by what authority do you do these things? Here would be the nice answer, the simple answer. God did this. Can we go now? Because that would get them off. But Peter and John aren't interested in getting off and being able to go free. They realize that God's given them a unique opportunity to present Jesus Christ to the 71 most powerful men of the day. And these men have a need. And they may not realize it, and they might not acknowledge it, but it's true. And so what Peter does, not trained in rhetoric, not trained in philosophy, is he turns the table and puts them on trial. And he says to them, are you really putting us on trial because we healed a crippled guy? Like, who's not for that? Who doesn't want people that can't walk to be able to walk? But if that's really why we're on trial, then let me tell you by what name we did this, whose authority it was done in. It was done in the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, and God raised from the dead. I look at that and I'm like, way to go, Peter! He's on my team. That guy, he's a Christian. I'm with him. That's how we roll, right? Peter. I was watching the draft and I was studying for this message and I, I was like, with the first round, Scott picks Peter to be on his team. Like, I got him. Really? Peter? He said that? And, and look at what he said where we started reading in verse 12. In verse 12, he says, there's no other name. Like, what other name am I going to tell you? There's no other name on earth given to men by which men shall be made whole, not just physically saved and able to walk, but made whole by which men shall be saved, spiritually saved from their sins. Yeah, amen, no kidding. There's no other name. And we don't have every word recorded in what Peter says here, but what could he have said to these guys? Talking about the name. And you think about the name throughout Scripture. His name is a strong tower. It's a refuge for the righteous as they run into it and they are saved. It's our protection. It's our guidance. It's our direction. His name. We're commanded to pray in his name. You pray these things in my name. It's not just a tag on we put on a prayer. We're praying what we believe that we would, he would pray if he were in our situation. We're to live in his name, not just pray in his name. It's that name. It's that name that's worshipped. It's that name that's walked in. It's that name that encourages. It's that name that rebukes. It's that name. It's the name that's above all names. It's the name of Jesus Christ that every knee shall bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the name he proclaims. And I look at that and I think, that guy, is, he's on my team. I want that guy. And when do we see that kind of courage in our lives? That kind of confidence 
in the face of fear. Same guy that months before denied even knowing who Jesus was because some slave girl says you were with him. What happened in that guy's life? And you can read that happened in John chapter 18 and 19 about the time when Jesus is on trial with these very men. And the high priest has said some things that are very prophetic, not even realizing it, but he's going to kill Jesus. And he gets sent to Pilate. And while all that's happening, Peter's denying that he even knows this guy that he said, I will never deny you. And see, Peter, by nature, is a bold person. It's kind of his personality. But he's lacking the spirit. Jesus tells Peter and the other disciples, and they have this, such a hard time believing this in John chapter 16, that when he leaves, it's better that he goes... Now, can you imagine that, being sitting there face-to-face with Jesus and him saying to you, it's better that I leave, because when I leave, I'm going to send the one that I promised, the Holy Spirit. And so what happened for Peter between John chapter 18 and 19 and Acts chapter 4 is Acts chapter 2. What happened for Peter is that he received the Holy Spirit. And if you want to study this on your own, you can go look. Acts chapter 2, verse 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Acts chapter 4, verse 31. It says three times, and Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. What Peter does here is not natural, it's supernatural. It's not natural because real courage isn't just bravery doing something no one else will do. Real courage isn't just being the first one to do it. Real courage is not just making history. Real courage is standing supernaturally with the power of Christ in the face of your fears with the confidence because you got him. See, as a believer in Jesus Christ, we all have the same Holy Spirit that Peter had. We all have the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. We all have the same Holy Spirit that Jesus was promising in John chapter 16. We have the ability to face our fears with confidence. And God desires for us to walk in faith, which requires trusting, leaning on Him, which will require a supernatural ability, which comes from the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Spirit. And you look through the Scriptures, and if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. But you can quench the Spirit, sin, ignoring, various different ways. Not listening to... Or you can be filled with the Spirit. How does that happen? Well, you don't say just, I want to be filled with the Spirit. Or get yourself worked up singing a song. Or do your devotions. Now I've been with Jesus. Give me the Spirit. Now what happens is, you get the Spirit when you surrender your life to Him. When you're yielded to Him. When you surrender your fears. When you surrender your stuff. When you surrender your flesh. When you surrender your abilities. When you surrender those things you don't want to lose. When you surrender your control. When you surrender all that stuff to Him. He fills you with the Spirit. And you're able to do supernaturally things you would never be able to do on your own. That's where the courage comes from. That's how come Peter's able to stand here and do this very thing. And it says in the text in verse 13 that these men who literally hate Jesus, they got rid of Jesus because he he could have perhaps changed their lives. They would forfeit eternal life in order to maintain their lifestyle. It says that these men, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, this isn't natural, they were astonished And they took note. This was noteworthy. These men have been with Jesus. And why do they say that? It's not because they saw Peter and John walking around with Jesus one day while Jesus was teaching Sermon on the Mount, coming into the temple, turning tables over. It wasn't that deal. It's because when they looked at these men, they saw something they had only seen in Jesus before. When they looked at these men, they saw Jesus. We oftentimes talk about what do we see? Can we see people like God does? What do people see when they look at us? Because many times what they see is they see nice people. They see friendly people. They see moral people. They see people whose cars drive out of the driveway for Sunday morning. But do they see Jesus Christ? 
Not do they say moral people and friendly people and nice people and religious people, but do they truly see Jesus in us? Because I think what oftentimes happens is what they see is an outward facade of Jesus, but was that an inward reality? It's like in the movie The Wizard of Oz. I don't know if you've ever seen The Wizard of Oz before. You can confess that later because it's got wizards in it and stuff, but here's the deal. Wizard of Oz, what ends up happening... So there's this girl, Dorothy, little dream that she has. Don't mean to ruin it, spoiler alert. But uh, she's hopping through with the Tin Man and the Scarecrow guy. You know, there's lions and tigers and bears, oh my. And lions and tigers and bears, oh my. And then this lion jumps out and scares the spit out of him. I mean, he, he just jumps up there and he's roaring and he starts talking to him. Put him up, put him up. He scares him. And then he starts chasing her little dog. She steps in, smacks the lion in the face, and he starts crying like a little baby. Have you seen this? He's a cowardly lion. There's no such thing as a cowardly lion, okay? A lion is the king of the forest, the king of the beast, the king of the jungle, whichever phrase you like. There's no such thing as a cowardly lion. It's an oxymoron in the show. It's like jumbo shrimp. doesn't exist. It's not a possibility. Cowardly lion. That's like saying Christless Christian. You would think that it doesn't exist. And in reality, it doesn't. But what there is in this movie is there's a man in a costume pretending to be a lion. Pretending at first to be scary. And then realizing that he's truly a coward. And that's what we have in so much of our society. The outward facade of things that are not reality. We pretend to live fearless lives. We pretend to be brave. We're willing to jump a snowmobile off of a ramp. We will not lead in our homes. We're willing to skydive out of a plane, but we won't share Jesus Christ with someone because of what they might think about us. So what is courage? And the truth is that many of us, male and female, live like our first father, Adam. There's a second Adam according to Scripture. You can study this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's Jesus Christ. When we live according to the first Adam, we do what's natural. Here's what happens with Adam. If you haven't read the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 2, God gives him a command before Eve is there. And the command is, don't eat of this tree. Now, Adam has a responsibility to teach his wife these things and also to protect her from violating these things. Genesis chapter 3, what happens is that Eve is deceived. And Adam's standing right there. And he doesn't step in and he doesn't lead. He's a coward. Now, Adam, if you really look at him, he does a great job at his job. Like, name all the animals and have rule and dominion over the whole earth. He's great at work. And he's a miserable failure in his God-given responsibility in the home. How many men do you know like that? Oh, you're courageous with the hostile takeover of another company. You're courageous that you'll go skiing down the Swiss Alps. But how are you doing spending time with your kids? You're supposed to disciple them. You're responsible for that. That's the father's job. Women, you're, you're great at leading the Bible study in the community. Do you respect your husband? Because you're responsible for that. And we're cowards to do the very thing that God's called us to do. But we're brave in the things that we decide we want to do. There's a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it's the exact opposite of what God's called us to do. It leads to death. So many of us live like the first Adam. Here's the difference between the first Adam and the second Adam. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, put these verses up there. I'll give you a couple there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, for as an Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. That's verse 22. You jump down to verse 45 in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says, so it is written, the first Adam, first man Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, that's Jesus Christ, a life-giving spirit. He gives us life. How do these men have this kind of courage? 
they took note that they had been with Jesus. Is Jesus a reality in your life? Or have you been trained to live the outward facade of Christianity? Maybe you were assimilated into the church. Do you truly know Jesus? Because when you're with Jesus, and Jesus is with you, and he promises he'll be with you always, he promises you that, then it's noteworthy. They took note. These men have been with Jesus. And what you see in them is a courage, an astonishing courage to stand up for Jesus Christ, to take the opportunity to fulfill the very mission that they've been given to live on. They do it together in community, headed in this new direction, this new kind of courage. This new kind of courage, it comes from being with Jesus. This new kind of courage, it has no fear of man. This new kind of courage has no fear of man. That's our second point. This new kind of courage means there's no fear of man. And I don't know what you wrote down on your piece of paper when we started this morning, but how many of those things could you tie back to the fear of other people? Whether it's a fear of loss of relationship, loss of friend, loss of something, maybe it's a fear, the loss of a job, it's a fear of man. How many things could you tie back to the fear of loss of control, the fear of loss of commitment or that you're afraid to commit, a fear of being known, a fear of your secret sin being found out, a fear of, we're afraid of people. Jesus actually tells his disciples in Luke that why would you fear people when the worst that they can do is kill you? Fear God. Because he can actually take your soul after you're killed and throw it into hell. There's a healthy fear of God. There is not a healthy fear of these people that can't do anything to you other than take your life. And God's in control of your life. If you think that you're in control, there's a myth there anyways. There should be no fear of man when you understand the filling of the Spirit and you surrender those things to him anyways. Because then you're living according to his purpose. That's the very confidence that we see in these men in this passage. It says that the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, since this guy was standing there in verse 14, but since they could see the man who had been healed standing there, <laughs> underlined standing there, there was nothing they could say. You can't argue with the changed life. So they dismissed. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin, verse 15. The climactic scene in the movie and the courtroom and there's the tension that's there and we've got to do something to release the tension, fade to black. They dismiss, send Peter and John out. Now we've got to talk about this. There's 71 of them. You can imagine, if you've ever been in a conference room meeting before, the boardroom breaks up and then a little conversation starts, three here, five there, ten guys over there, 71 of them. And the essence of what they're saying is this, what are we going to do with these men? Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they've done an outstanding miracle. We can't deny it. We can't go out there and pretend like this didn't happen. And now they just proclaim they did it in the name of Jesus, who we killed and God raised from the dead. And we can't deny that either. It's an interesting note that the Sadducees who lead this group don't believe in the resurrection. They never deny the resurrection. You want strong evidence that Jesus Christ raised from the dead. If they wanted to shut this thing down, all they had to do was prove that Jesus didn't raise from the dead and the whole movement, 5,000 men, it's over. They don't have to worry about this anymore. But these guys never even question that the resurrection took place. Instead, what they say is this, verse 17, but to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men not to do this anymore. Like, you cut that out. Stop speaking in this name. So then they call them back in, back to the courtroom scene. And they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. <laughs> this is interesting because these are the highest authorities in the land. 
This is the Supreme Court. And what Peter and John say back is not. I understand that you guys are really powerful. We serve someone more powerful. His commands contradict yours, so we're going with his. That's not what they say. Notice what they say. You're commanded not to speak in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight. You're going to be accountable for what you decide with this, to obey you rather than God. But here's what we're going to do. Verse 20, we cannot help, and you can underline that, for we cannot help, we can't stop ourselves from speaking about what we've seen and heard. We have to do this. Not, we've been commanded, and we kind of, it's like torn, like we know you're in charge, but he's in charge, and he's more in charge. It's not that. There's not even like a wrestling match here. They're saying, we've been made to do this. This is what we were created for. We cannot stop doing this. There's nothing that could stop us. No circumstances, no authority, no people. This is what we were created for. Now, this is the same guy that about 50 days earlier, two months earlier, you could say about, he denied ever knowing Jesus. What happened? The Spirit of God filled him. And the mission's been given now. Remember at the end of every gospel and in Acts 1-8, you are to be my witnesses. The purpose is clear. They know their purpose. And do you know your purpose in life? I mean, so many people, they struggle with that. Am I doing what God wants me to do? What's my purpose? And how's it supposed to look? And all these types of things. And that is a tension of life. You don't want to get to the end, feel like you wasted your life. These guys, they know. And their purpose is the same purpose that all of us have as followers of Jesus Christ. So we have a mission for him, the Great Commission. Make disciples, baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And he's with us always. And we teach them everything we know about Jesus. And we preach the gospel to all nations. And we preach them to repent and for forgiveness in Luke. And we've been sent, just as the Father sent Jesus, so we've been sent into the world. That's our mission. Acts 1-8, you are to be my witnesses. That's your purpose. There isn't really much question about that. There's not much debate about that. But how does it look? Well, that's where it gets interesting, because not only do we have a purpose, but we have a place. We've all been given a placement. Peter and John, they're standing here before the Sanhedrin. We'll never stand before the Sanhedrin. It doesn't exist any longer. But each one of us has a place. Acts chapter 17 says, where we live and move and we have our being. God's predetermined the time where you would live. He decided that you would live here now in 2012. Not in the 50s, not in 2050, not in the 30s, not in the 1800s, the 1600s, the 1400s, not the first century. You live here and now and God's determined that and that you live in the exact sphere of influence that you have. Whether that's your mom's group, whether that's the hospital, whether that's some corporate world, whether that's a law office, whether it's a doctor's office, whether it's at a preschool, wherever you're at, in the Starbucks you go to, God's determined that. So you've got a purpose and you've got a place. You also have a personality. Each one of us fearfully and wonderfully made. Each one of us, when we come into the body of Christ, uniquely given gifts. Each one of us having a different life experience that we bring to the table. And what happens is when those three things come together, your place, your personality, and your purpose, you're in your sweet spot. And that's where Peter and John find themselves here. We can't stop doing this. We now know our sweet spot. We were made for this. We cannot help but speak about these things. And what's your sweet spot? Do you know what it's like? Do you know when you're in that place where God's created you for? When he brings together the other circumstances of your life for that moment fulfill the purpose he has for your life and the exact place he has you filtered through your personality for his glory I shared with my wife a couple weeks ago she wasn't able to come to a service and she was home with the kids and I was preaching and I said uh, there was a moment where I was up there and I was talking other words were coming out but I, I sensed God just saying this is what you were made for 
This is what you're to do. And I didn't mean be a pastor. And I, I didn't mean that it had to be an employee at Southbridge Fellowship Church. I mean, it was just in that spot where I've been given something. God's changed my life. And no matter what circumstances change, whether there's you know, intense persecution someday and this church shuts down and I can't work here and, and everything gets taken from me and separated from my family, no one can ever take Jesus Christ from me. And even if I get put in, you know, in prison and changed, no one can stop me from talking about what Jesus Christ has done in my life. That's what I've been made to do. And so you, what's the best you can do is kill me? Well, I fear God more than I fear that. So think about what it would be like to have the confidence in the face of whatever circumstances you face. To know what your purpose is and to see that your placement is strategic by God and that he's made you fearfully and wonderfully a unique image bearer of his. What's your sweet spot? Let me tell you something. I know that it was created for his glory. I, I promise you that. You were created for his glory, according to the scriptures. And sometimes we get confused and we think that we're created for our own glory. And we think that we've got to pursue our path in order for things to work out the way that we want them to, much like the Sanhedrin. See, many of us can identify more with the Sanhedrin if we're honest with ourselves than we can with Peter and John in this passage. And so we want to keep things under control and do things our way and we live for our glory and for our good. Let me tell you something I've learned. It's taken me some time. That not only am I created for his glory, but that's not exclusive from my good. And you read guys like John Piper and various well-known theologians out there, and I'll talk about things. Piper has a book, I believe it's called Christian Hedonism, where we're most satisfied in him when he's most glorified in us. It's the very thing that we are made for, that our good and his glory are not exclusive from one another, that actually his glory, when we're glorifying him, is the very best thing that could possibly be happening in our lives because it's what we are made for. The problem is that oftentimes we try to live our lives for our purposes and for our glory, and we're fighting against what the creator has made us. I don't know if you've ever bought a product before and you don't read the owner's manual. I don't ever read the owner's manuals, so just to let you know that. But you know what it's made for, and if you use it for something else, that's not good for the product. Like, if you buy a hairdryer today on your way home from church, you go to Walmart, buy a hairdryer, and you go home and try to, try to hang up some pictures, you know, nail something on the wall with them, you will break the hairdryer eventually. It's not made for that. The manufacturer gives instructions for how it's to be made. The creator, manufacturer, has given us instructions for how we were made and how we're to be used. And when we fight against that, we're fighting against God. That doesn't go well. And that's also one of the reasons why you see so many Christians that are not filled with the Spirit. That we lack the power. That we're an outward facade of what should be an inward reality of the power of God in our lives. He didn't give you a spirit of timidity, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, but of power of courage, of boldness, it says in there, and also of self-control. And so, if you were going to be courageous, if you were going to be confident in the face of fear, what would that look like in your life? Jumping out of a plane, snowmobile off of a ramp, to be in the first, or would it be something where people look at you and they say, that person's been with Jesus? Because what we see in them is something that we only see in Jesus, because that's what happened with Peter and John. They saw the courage that they'd only seen from a man who decided to leave heaven and come to earth. Talk about the first to do something. See, there's a lot of people that love to leave here and go there. There aren't any people up there that want to come back here. And he left there and he came here because he loves you. And he was a demonstration of real courage when he stands not only before the authorities of the day and teaches them about their greatest spiritual need, but when he who knew no sin became sin for us, he became that. 
That's an identity statement. He became sin. He was God, and he became sin so that you might become the righteousness of God. That's your example. That's what he's done for you. What would it look like for you to be courageous for him? For some of you, it would be to embrace that very truth, that he became sin for you so that you might become his righteousness and be cleansed and be freed from your sin and be free from condemnation, but it means you've got to surrender your life to God and accept Jesus Christ to be your Savior. Maybe that's what you need to do today. For others of you, you've trusted Christ. You've got fears. You wrote them down on your paper. And the step of faith for you will be to face those fears with God's kind of courage. What would it look like for you to walk by faith into whatever that fear is, to make that commitment? If you're afraid to commit, what would it look like to make that commitment? What would it look like to let yourself be known? What would it look like to forgive someone? What would it look like for you to let that secret sin finally be exposed and get it out there? What would it look like for you to live in community? What would it look like to step by, by faith? And for some of you, what you wrote down in your paper, your greatest fear, doesn't correlate with the step of faith. But what step of faith does God want you to take today that would require boldness, that would require courage? Is it sharing Christ with someone that you know he's wanted you to share Jesus with for some time? Maybe before I even mentioned anything in this message and God's spoken to you in your heart about who that is today. Or maybe it's some other step of faith that I could never even guess, but you know. And so what we're going to do as we conclude is I want you to take that same piece of paper out that you wrote your greatest fear on. And I want you to write down what would be a step of faith for me that would require God's courage. It could be a step of faith with your finances. It could be a step of faith in a relationship. It could be a step of faith with your time. It could be various different things. It could be sharing Jesus Christ with someone else. And for some of you, it means I need to surrender my life to Jesus Christ. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to write it down and be specific. Don't write down, I need to be courageously bold for Jesus. (laughs) That's wonderful. Sounds really nice. What does that mean? Who does that mean you need to talk to? Bob, Susie, whatever name you need to write down. What phone call do you need to make to forgive someone? Reconciliation needs to take place if you're going to truly live according to the promises that were given by God. What would a step of faith courageously look like for you? Where you're at, at this place, through your personality, according to God's purpose for your life. I'll give you a couple minutes to write that down, and I'll come up and conclude us.